This is Rhetoric in Retrospect. I'm Ben. I'm joined today by my Myrmidons, Max and David. In this episode, we will discuss ring composition. Today, I don't think that we will have a, a quite usual exordium, because I was recently reminded that exordia, exordia, exordiae? Exordius? Exordii? Wait, no, because that would be like exordius. Exordius. Exordiums. Plural exordiums. Yes. Wait, hold on, hold on. We got to figure this out because like the neuter plural. Oh, then it's The second declension neuter. But no, no, but um is the singular. And so it would be exordia. Oh, yeah, yeah, wouldn't it? Because it. Yeah. Okay, excellent. Yeah, because I don't think it's a masculine noun. Okay, good. I'm glad we have figured that out. Now we, we can say with confidence, um, we are not having a usual exordia today. We are having a unusual exordia today. We, we are having a question instead of a quote. And so my question for the my two, my two myrmidons, as we say in the intro, and for all of you, please answer on your own, is what is your favorite shape? And... I'm not sure a favorite is the proper word. Maybe um, the your ideal shape, um, what, what shape you appreciate <laughs> the most, something like that. Um, so, so what is your answer to those? This is sort of like asking Sony what their favorite color is. <laughs> it's sort of arbitrary, isn't it? Except it this is. is even more arbitrary because at least with color, it determines like what what colors you wear, what colors you want exactly. your room to be colored. But with shape, it's like. It doesn't matter. <laughs> you, you can't make a circular room just swap it because your color yes. shape changed. You're not going to say, oh, I want to, I like circles the best, so I'm going to have my house be in the shape of a circle. Yes. Actually, think, saying that out loud, people have liked <laughs> circles so much that they get circular houses. I, I have to imagine that's happened before. <laughs> I imagine it was, has. I feel as if this is a loaded question. It, it, it is a bit of a loaded question, especially <laughs> since I've asked you two beforehand what and told you what the proper answer is. And you, listener, I am guessing that you have deduced from the intro and from the title of this podcast what the correct answer is. Because I mean, you, you hear rings and shapes. And what shape does a ring make? Well, a circle. Yeah. Circle. So, so the right answer yeah. is circle. In, My in favorite case. shape is a ring. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, yes, mine Wait, is too, of course. But but <laughs> we, we must give credit where credit is due. Go watch CGP's Grays. Um, hex- hexagons are the bestagons. That it's a close contender. But in this case, we will um posit that the circles are are greater. Anyways, yes. So, as you have deduced from the title and from what we have just been talking about, we are talking um today about ring composition and. Yeah, I, I sort of do apologize three in a row from me being language, literature, and entertainment, and me me going on about my favorite books and, and all the, the symbolism and construction behind them. Speaking oh, there's no me. need to apologize, Ben. Oh, it, we it, enjoy it, it as much as our it, audience does. Oh, yes, oh, yes. Oh, I, by that I mean we do enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very glad to hear it because it is one of my favorite things to talk about. But do not fear. We shall soon stray from the language, literature, and entertainment that we shall oft return to it. But this should be the last for a little bit of of these symbolic um, story deconstructions. But this, I think, this is a very, very important 
episode, and I thought that preparing for literary alchemy was very difficult, but this, this has proved to be far and away much more difficult than that, because literary alchemy is something that is very little known. Only those who really, really study books or authors who are, have gone deep into the weeds of reading other people and have noticed these symbols have picked up on it. And maybe some of the reasons why you see literary alchemy and alchemical symbols applied so much is because people just pick up the symbolism from other books and say, oh, looks like this symbol means this, and so they stick it in, but they don't know the context or the meaning. So it's not very well known. Ring composition, on the other hand, is a very ancient, not that literary alchemy isn't, but it's a very well-known ancient form of parallelism, which is woven through many stories. We'll talk about three in particular, which seem completely unrelated, but I assure you they are not. We're going to talk about the Book of Numbers from the Bible. We are going to talk about Star Wars, and we are going to talk about Harry Potter. And we shall explain later the, the um, similarities between those three. But I don't think I've really described what ring composition is. I've, I've told you where it's found in its history a bit. But what is it really? So ring composition is a method of story structure, of writing, or of listening, of structuring a story in general. Whereas you, the entire, you can graph out the entire story and its chapters and parts in a circle. You can have the beginning and the end at the bottom point, and you can have a bunch of points around the circle with each chapter, and often there's a turning point halfway through, about halfway through the story. And you can mark that, that that's the, the, the midpoint, the, the center of the circle. And that sort of consolidates the entire story in, into that one little part. And all of the chapters on opposite sides of the circle, you can draw lines to each other, and they correspond in some way. And we'll give you plenty of examples of that. And you, you may say, well, th this seems very out there. If this is the case, why have I never heard of this before? And, well, maybe you have, but it, it's not very common However, it's how stories in general have been written for the past few millennia, because the, the mark of, it, it used to be when the, the main transmission of stories was by word, and, word of mouth, when bards would come and sing to you out stories or whatever, the mark of a good story, how you could tell someone's authenticity, that if it was the original and such, was by whether or not it was well-structured in a ring in this case, because... The, the ring is notoriously difficult to create, and we'll give you some excellent examples of that creation well done. But you know, and people knew back then, that when you hear a well-constructed ring, it usually means that you're listening to a story where the creator has put a lot of effort into um, making sure everything fits together well and connects. So do, do you all have any, any thoughts on that? I think that there's a very important distinction to make between chiastic structure and this because yes. at, at first glance this sounds a lot like a chiastic structure and uh, a podcast that we are very fond of classical stuff oh, yes yeah it, it, uh, almost insulted uh, the ring composition in one of their newer episodes yes however they were talking about chiasm uh, and they were addressing that directly yeah so yeah and uh, if you guys are listening to this, which I hope you are at this point, I hope we've sent you an email and have notified you of our existence. Well, um, uh, first of all, thank you very much for the great service you've done. I 
uh, do I get the award for listening to every podcast of yours within three weeks? I can give you the dates. No, but anyways, um, no, thank you very much for all of your podcasts. And we are trying to emulate you to a degree, but have our own um, bit of originality. But anyways, um, right, right, you are. There is certainly a difference between chiastic structure and ring composition. And often that difference is the length. If you hear something chiastic, I, I, I um, prepared a few quote examples, short quote examples. Um, the absence of evidence is not a- evidence of absence. And, and that's a very chiastic sentence there. You have A is absence, evidence is B, and then is not is your, your C bit. And then you have B prime evidence and then A prime absence. So the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, which is a very chiastic, um, um, yeah, a very chiastic sentence in general. Chiastic? Yes, yes. We looked at the pronunciation beforehand. Wait, hold on, hold on. It's, it was, wait, it was chiastic, chiastic, or, wait. Chiasm? I don't think it was chi- chiasm. chiasm. Yes, yes, that, that was it. Chiasm, right, you are, right, yeah. you are. So, yeah. chiastic, yes, chiastic structure. Okay. And the other quote that we prepared was, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what ask what you can do for your country. And that's another very chiastic, chiastic, sorry, sentence. So I, ho- I hope you get those examples. But the difference with this is that in a story, you're not going to really notice it. It's very difficult to notice unless you're really digging deep and reading it like a ring. And later on, I have prepared instructions on how to read like a ring. And I hope that you appreciate those and can apply them in some of the, the works you love. But anyways, um, why should this ring matter to me, you may ask? Well, many ways. Nowadays, there is not as much writing as ring, writing in rings, alas, as there used to be. It's um, very often that we hear authors will go with the flow and follow their characters wherever they lead. But that is a very new idea. It, it used to be that you would firmly plan out where your story is going to go. You knew what would happen. And so you could tweak things to have them be exactly where you want. And yeah, yeah. Um, so the way you can appreciate it is, A, since we have so few ring, ring stories today, it's difficult to recognize them. And when we do recognize them, they seem very odd because they're a departure from what we're, we're usually reading or listening or watching. Um, so I hope that in this podcast, we can make you think next time you, you read a book or listen to something or watch a movie and you say, this seems very odd, this structure, it doesn't make sense. I don't like listening or watching or reading this. Why is it like this? It seems so confused and backwards. Well, maybe, maybe, just maybe, this could be a, a good example of a ring composition. And because we're so unused to ring compositions, it could be that this is exactly what you need and you can go read or listen or watch it like, like a ring and you'll appreciate so much more the artistry and meaning that's gone into the, the creation of this story because believe me it is difficult to compose the ring so i should i hope i've done a decent job there of defining a ring a bit but now i shall give you the, the rules of a ring and define by example so if you are looking to learn more about rings Hopefully, we have linked in the description a few images that are very helpful to understanding these seven rules of a ring. But where, may you ask, 
have do I have this information? How does this six sixteen year old? No, I, wait, am I fifteen or sixteen? No, I'm fifteen. I'm fifteen. Never mind. <laughs> okay. Yeah, okay. I, I always forget my age. Sorry. How how does this fifteen year old know about ring composition, which is a a little known topic? Well, I I happen to have read works by Mr. John Granger, who I referenced many times before, and I'll reference many times in the future. But I highly recommend that you either buy one of Mr. Granger's books and give it a thorough read, or you go to HogwartsProfessor.com and read what is one of the many thousands of articles there on all things Harry Potter and um, literary descriptions. It, it's a very cultured place. It doesn't. It's not, it sounds like a Harry Potter fan club. It's not. Don't worry. It, it's very good. I highly recommend it. Um, but I have read his books, and he talks about ring composition, and he gets his ring composition stuff, and most people get their ring composition stuff from an anthropologist named Mary Douglas, and she wrote an excellent book called Thinking in Circles, an essay on ring composition. And that is pretty much the go-to if you want to learn that ring composition. And that's, I, I actually didn't finish it. I had to skim the last few chapters due to lack of time, but I have read most of it, and it is an excellent read, and you can appreciate much more about ring composition in it. So I highly recommend reading that. That, that, that is my, um, my source for the seven rules of a ring. So the first thing that you need in the ring is an exposition or a prologue to your story. You need some sort of introduction. If you're just thrown into the middle of it, higgledy-piggledy, you don't really know what's going on. Um, it, it's not ideal. And none of these are hard and fast rules. If you break them, it doesn't mean that it's not a ring. But this is things that authors of rings often have to follow in order to make the rings work. So if, if you're missing maybe one of these, it's not, you, you can't definitively say this is not a ring. But usually you need these in order to be the scaffolding for the, the ring you're creating. So that, that's the first rule, the exposition or prologue. And the second rule is that the entire exposition has to be split into two halves, right? So you, you need a distinct um, first and second part of the ring, right? So it, be, because if, if, the end, if it's split into two halves and if this is a ring, the end is going to need to join to the beginning at some point, right? So... In this, you're, you're drawing an imaginary, if you, if you have a circle, you're just drawing an imaginary line straight through it between the middle and the beginning, which sort of separates it into two halves. And it, it's really important that that's one of those critical parts of, of a ring book to have that mid-turn that's really well-defined so that the reader knows, okay, this is the center section and I can split everything down this and read oppositely leading up to this point. And... That, that, that's one of the most important parts of this. You also need parallel sections, which is sort of a, a continuation of the last point. So after the midturn, your challenge is um, to arrange both the sides in parallel. So the chapters or parts across from each other need to reference each other in some way. So we'll, we'll give you many examples of all of these later. Don't worry. But the, the chapters or sections do need to be parallel. And fourth, you need indicators to mark individual sections. And this is not really technically necessary. You, you can still have a ring without it, but then the reader won't really understand it as a ring unless you have distinctions between sections. And this is, most books already have satisfied this in terms of 
chapters. You have chapter one, chapter two, and stuff is distinguished between. So it's not just one big blur of words. And that's something pretty much that's taken for granted. We have chapters. The fifth is the central loading. And that, it, the, the, I'm not sure how well that's worded, but that's the turning point of the ring. And that's what, it, it's sort of the, the, the keystone for the rest of the ring. It needs to be unmistakable where this the center point is. And one clue that the middle, you, you've gotten to the middle of the story, is that it uses some of the same keywords that you found in the, the exposition or the prologue of the book. So that's one indicator. And it also tends to reflect the ending because the ending reflects the exposition. So it tends to be similar to the both of them. And that makes the entire piece very connected. And the sixth, this is one of the most interesting. And don't worry, don't worry, the examples are coming. But um, six is rings within rings. So often, particularly in a series, you'll have one big ring overall, right? And then you'll have each separate book might be a ring. And then maybe each chapter has a ring. So it's, it's not very advanced if you just have one big ring that's that's not very difficult to do, but if having rings down to minute levels is very impressive. And that's, what I think, what makes good ring composition so impressive is it's not difficult to make a chiastic sentence, but making a chiastic, a bunch, hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands of chiastic sentences, and then chiastic chapters, and then a chiastic book, and then a chiastic series, that's the real trick. And seeing that well done is truly amazing. And you also... The seventh and last rule is closure at two levels. So you need to have the end join with the beginning. Otherwise, it's a line. And how interesting is a line? Not very interesting at all. We don't have any connection of the beginning and the end, and then the chapters aren't parallel. Messes up the whole thing. So you really need to have the end connect to the beginning. And usually, the exposition or the pro prologue will promise something, and then the ending will fulfill that promise or close close the story, tie up loose ends, etc. Um, and often, almost always, in a good ring, the ending is going to have some of the same words used in the exposition. So take note of the wording used in the beginning, the, the prologue, and go look at the end. And I almost guarantee if it's a ring, you will find very similar wording. And there is also usually them thematic correspondence and like, if it's a mission, the mission will turn out to have been successful. If it's failed, it's the journey's end, um, etc. So, uh, prophecies as well. I've noticed that where Creorden often uses the, I guess, the idea of prophecies often, as, I guess, yes, it's, it's one of his literary devices he employs in almost all of his books. Yeah, uh, mm -hmm. to totally. You, you can really see that. That's a good point. It's at the beginning of the book, they say the prophecy, and then at the end, they fulfill the prophecy, or it becomes clear to the reader how the prophecy came true. It's also helpful to note that uh, that Rick Riordan pulls from Greek mythology, and that is very true for Greek mythology as well, especially in the Iliad and the Odyssey. Yeah, and I didn't have time to prepare that, but I think that David might talk a little bit about how some of those 
um, ancient Greek works of literature are somewhat chiastic and ring compositional. Is that an adjective? We've made it one. <laughs> okay, now, now we, that we have gone over the, the seven rules of a ring, I, I will give you some examples, and uh, I will leave it up to the two of you. Wh which would you like to hear first? Would you like to hear about the Book of Numbers? Would you like to hear about Star Wars? Or would you like to hear about Harry Potter? I feel like we have to place God first. We have to we have to go with numbers. You agree with my outline. Excellent. Sounds good. We shall begin with the Book of Numbers as a ring. We shall um, explain the Book of Numbers as a ring by explaining first the, how it satisfies the seven rules. And then we'll give you some further examples of the specific Book of Numbers. And one of your points that you, you may have thought of, because I know that I thought of it when, when I was writing this outline, is that you're telling all of this to me as if it's 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 for stories only, and the Bible isn't a story, it's it's true. So how are you reconciling these two ideas, that the Bible is both ring compositional as well as true? Well, in this case, the, the book of Numbers is a, a conglomeration of a bunch of stories and laws, and one of the most interesting things about it is that it alternates stories and laws, and that's one of the ways that you'll see it. It reflects on each other, but in each chapter, you'll see an alternation. So chapter one, you have a story. Chapter two, you have a law. Chapter three, you have a story. Chapter four, you have a law. Chapter five, you have a story. Chapter six, you have a law, and so on and so forth. And that's the, um, that's how we, the, the author of numbers can split this up in order to be ring compositional. And one of the, it just adds really to the importance of the book as a religious document because it's given this credence by the fact that someone has invested the time to make this a really meaningful work packed with many layers of meaning. And I'm not, I'm not um, pro um, being a proponent that we should read into the Bible more than it is. I think there's some symbolism, but not as much as some may read into it. But I think that it is intentionally structured, especially in this case, to be... Um, a signpost for people to say this is important listen to what's happening here so th that that's my my spiel on on the co combination of ring composition and numbers but now we shall see how numbers fulfills the, the seven rules of a ring so the first is the exposition so chapters one through four lay out um the themes that are sort of repeated throughout the entire book and tell us who's who for our reading and it, it's sort of a grim tone we get in the first four chapters and like the those who encroach on the tabernacle will face the wrath of the lord it's sort of grim in general the exposition um the the fulfillment of the second rule split into two halves is chapters 16 and 7 so if we mark actually i think that's a typo on my part i think it's chapter 16 and 17 i will have to double check that sorry i think it's chapter 16 and 17 i could be wrong but if, if we mark those as the middle, then the chapters on the opposite sides of the ring will correspond to each other in what we see in terms of both laws and stories and the content of the laws and stories. Um, for the third role, third role? I mean, that's a combination of rule and law. The third rule um, is identifiable parallel sections. Um, so many rings have similar word choice in corresponding sections, but it's usually not enough because that's just words. You need to have something deeper in the actual content, not just the similar words. Um, and numbers in particular has endings to sections. And I think we'll know from Shakespeare and many other works that the ending is really an important place to, to give you hints and clues as to what's going on. 
Shakespeare often ends his scenes or acts or important dialogues with um, rhyming couplets. And that's a sign to us that, that this is the ending of this or whatever. This is the fulfillment that, or happy and people bounce rhymes off each other then. There's all this um, rhyming, especially with rhymes in Shakespeare, that he uses to um, signal to us uh, things about people or what's going on or this is the end or the beginning or whatever. So that is just another similarity. So in numbers in particular, it also uses endings to great effect. So the fourth rule is indicators to mark individual sections. And this is pretty obvious because, well, it's not split up chapter by chapter. We do have obvious um, alternating law in narrative. You can tell where one law ends and where the next story begins. It's very simple, even though it's not chapter by chapter. Um, the chap the the rule five is the central loading. So in this case, it's the the revolt of the Levites. That's a very obvious middle point. It's a super big change in the story. We see the ringleaders get swallowed up by the earth as a command from God to demonstrate the authority granted to Moses from the Lord. So that's a very stunning and unusual thing for the book. So that is something that we can obviously point to as the, the central loading, the, the midpoint, the, the center of the ring. And the sixth is rings within rings. One really good example that's really well defined in this book, I'm sure there are others. I have not had time to conduct a very thorough ring reading of numbers or many books as much as I would love to. Alas, I haven't had the time. I do need to um, do some more ring readings, but anyway. In this case, the, the best is the story of Balaam with his donkey. And then the seventh satisfying rule is the closure, the ending of the story. So we have the three leaders dead. Um, we've followed the pillar of fire and cloud, bought off the Canaanites and found the Jordan, seen the promised land. And that, that's the main thing. Um, Moses finished his journey. The main thing is the seeing the promised land. Because at the beginning, we get all these promises about the promised land, right? And at the end of the book, they're fulfilled, and we actually get to see the promised land. So that that's the, the closure, the ending of Numbers. So do you have any questions on Numbers as a ring? I do not have any questions. I think you made it very clear, the, the ring structure in Numbers. But Max, Max might. When you're talking about reading into the Bible, but, uh, but at the same time, so recognizing the patterns of the Bible, but at the same time, not reading too far into it. Yeah. What is your your stopping rule, your, your contention in where reading too far into the Bible becomes unnecessary? It, it, it becomes, I, I, I guess, yeah. an improper... Yeah, in, in, okay, okay. It becomes sort of when you're reading too far into it what's the stopping rule that makes it improper i completely that's a really good point that i completely forgot about um and as we have already referenced classical stuff you should know recently did an excellent episode on a very similar topic and i highly recommend you go check that out but um my my stance i haven't thought about it too much but i think that the bible like many great books has intentionally built in signposts and markers to to say where you are and and such and has layers of meaning most good books have layers of meaning and a few good movies christopher nolan i'm looking at you there's a few good stories that manage to give you more and more each time you read it get more and more understanding 
but you can still so much appreciate it for what it is in the moment of your first reading. So I think that the Bible is one of those that you, you get more and more insight each time you read it. But I don't think that we can um, identify based on the numbers of certain verses and where they are in relation to everything else exactly when the end time or whatever. S stuff like that. Trying to predict things based off the Bible. <laughs> and, and the numbers and specific words used isn't, it seems a bit out there to me. But I haven't done enough research to defin definitively state an opinion. But that's my, my gut feeling. There's definitely a deeper meaning to a lot of what the Bible has to say. For example, the the Old Testament is filled with signs of a coming Messiah and yeah. this ultimate sacrifice that the the people will no longer have to provide animal sacrifices, pure animal sacrifices, and or clean animal sacrifices, and it's it's littered with these these deep meanings pointing to Christ but yeah if you dig deep you might find something that isn't actually true but you take it to be true and the rule I'd say is just know when to stop know when yeah too much is the, to, to yeah when the, when the onion when there's nothing to peel <laughs> exactly. back from the onion don't get don't get into the actual onion and ruin it. Yeah, don't start imagining things that aren't there. And that, that that's a really good point that I think that Mary Douglas brings up in her Thinking in Circles book. All her friends say, well, Mary, you can find a ring structure in anything, no matter what it is. If you look hard enough, it's there, right? And, and she says, no, actually, a, a ring composition is a really difficult thing to pull off well. And there's only a few good examples of it being really well done. The best one of which is, in my opinion, Harry Potter. Um, well, well, don't worry. Well, we'll, we'll get to that. But I think that is most of my my numbers spiel. I will. There, there is so much I haven't mentioned. There's uh, maybe fifty or a hundred pages in Thinking in Circles on numbers as a ring, and I cannot encapsulate that in the fifty minutes I've spent on it. So I hope this has piqued your interest. If it has, um, hopefully we'll leave a link in the description somewhere. And you can click on that and we'll have a bunch of other links to other stuff and go check out Thinking in Circles and read more about that. But um, which of the remaining two would you like to tackle next? Star Wars or Harry Potter? Hmm. They're both very uh, good. I th I think Harry Potter. Okay. Sounds good. The, the, the... Or wait, which way is it laid out in your outline? In, it in my matter. outline, it's Star Wars next because it's the, not as impressive as Harry Potter, but I'm completely fine with doing Harry Potter next. Oh, no, no, I want to do Star Wars. I want to do Star okay. Wars, definitely. Sounds good. And, and this one was one that sort of surprised me. One day, as you do, when I was Googling ring composition furiously, um, I happened to stumble upon... I, I didn't know that there was any relation to anything else at the time, but I stumbled upon this wonderful website called StarWarsRingTheory.com. It is one page... Well, it, it, it's a, a bunch of pages, but it's all one essay. It's a pretty long essay but I highly recommend you read it if you like Star Wars at all. And even, even if you don't, I think you'll come to a much deeper appreciation of it. And also, if, if you are a hater of the prequels, which I, I must confess, I sort of was a little bit before I read it, but I was cured once I had finished. So I, 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 recommend, I recommend that you go and spend the hour and read it thoroughly and appreciate what it has to say, because George Lucas is a genius. Believe me. So, 
there's a lot of um, very nice diagrams here, which I'm afraid I can't show you. But I hope that if I've figured out that this is copyright okay, I think it is, then we should leave those as a link in the description as well. So there should be one link down there. If you click it, you should be able to see all that we're talking about here. So the, the, the way that it works, it, it's an actually very obvious ring because all of the sections are laid out as movies. So each movie is a different chapter, if you will. And that ring there is we have our, our A, B, C, C prime, B prime, A prime. And that's A is the Phantom Menace, B is the Attack of the Clones, C is the Revenge of the Sith, C prime is a New Hope, B prime is the Empire Strikes Back, and A prime is the Return of the Jedi. So certain, certain the letters correspond, so the Phantom Menace and the Return of the Jedi are very similar, and Attack of the Clones and the Empire Strikes Back are very similar, and Revenge of the Sith and A New Hope are very similar. And I can detail those similarities if you wish. So between the, the, the outline, the... Um, the, the sandwich is The Phantom Menace and The Return of the Jedi. And each of these movies pretty much has three acts, and that's how he, um, George Lucas wrote the script. And one of the wonderful things about these movies is another good example would be of ring composition, would be J.K. Rowling's Fantastic Beast series. But the thing is, since nobody really appreciates the, the work that she does in, in ring composition, she's pretty OCD then they will cut it out of the movie because, oh, this scene doesn't seem important to the plot or whatever. So it'll get cut out. So it was written like a ring, but then it wasn't filmed like a ring, and so you don't really get the full ring experience unless you go and watch all of the extra scenes. So the nice thing about Star Wars is that George Lucas wrote it and produced it, and at, at that point he had the clout to be able to say, this is how it's going to be done, because he was directing and producing it. So thankfully this is one of those few good examples where the director and the writer were the same and got to actually execute their plans and another is Christopher Nolan I have not dug as deep into his ring composition I'm sure it's there I know it's there but I haven't dug as deep so if you're interested in Christopher Nolan I please um, dissect that and let me know I would be super interested to hear anything you find but anyway we're talking about Star Wars now so the, the parallels between The Phantom Menace and The Return of the Jedi in Act 1 um, is that two Jedi embark on a mission to rescue Queen Amidala from Thread Palace, or Theed Palace, yeah. Then in The Return of the Jedi, two droids embark on a mission to rescue Han Solo from Jabba the Hutt's palace. So it's two somethings go on a mission to rescue somebody important from some palace. So that's the correspondences between those two acts. And then Act 2 of the Phantom Menace and Act 2 of the Return of the Jedi are on the planet Tatooine, uh, a native named Anakin Skywalker befriends the Jedi and helps them fix their ship. And then on the planet Endor, the native Ewoks befriend the rebels and help them to help them destroy the shield generator. So that that's similar because it's on a, a distant planet and the natives help the, the, the good guys, I suppose, um, accomplish their goal. And then there, there's a great race involving pod racers in The Phantom Menace. There's a great chase involving speeder bikes in Return of the Jedi. Anakin leaves his mother to face the Jedi Council and become a Jedi. Luke leaves his friends to face Darth Vader, Darth Vader and become a Jedi. Um, Amidala falls into Palpatine's trap and calls for a vote of no confidence. The rebels fall into Palpatine's trap and attack the, the Death Star. And then Act 3 is the primitive Gungans join forces with the Naboo to defeat the evil Trade Federation. 
in a multi-strand battle. And then in the Return of the Jedi, the primitive Ewoks join forces with the rebels to defeat the evil Galactic Empire in a multi-strand battle. So I, I hope you see and appreciate those those parallels because the, they blew me away. My jaw hit the floor w when I saw all of these. It, it's incredible how George Lucas wrote these. And, and you don't really notice them when you're watching the movies often because they're so far apart. But they're certainly there, I assure you. And w shall I detail the, the similarities between the, the other two sets of movies? Absolutely. Yes, yes. Okay. So the, the parallels between the attack of the clones and the Empire Strikes Back, the, the B and B Prime movies, they also have three acts. So I'll detail the similarities between them. So in Act 1 on each, on Coruscant, Anakin lures a mysterious attacker to him by using Padme as bait, a bounty hunter escapes. The Empire discovers the location of the rebel base on Hoth and launches a major ground offensive, and the rebels evacuate. So that, that's escapes, lures, um, attacks. Yeah. Act 2 is then Anakin escorts Padme to safety off-planet where they fall in love. Han escorts Leia to safety off-planet where they fall in love. Meanwhile, Luke travels to the faraway planet of Dagobah to search, a to search for a mysterious Jedi Master named Yoda. Um, Obi-Wan travels to the faraway planet of Kamino to ser to, in search of a mysterious bounty hunter named Jango Fett, so both traveling to faraway planets to search somebody mysterious out. Um, Anakin and Padme rush, rush off to rescue Obi-Wan, who's been captured on... G I've never known how to pronounce this. G-E-O-N-O-S-I-S. Genosis? Something like... Geonosis. Geonosis. Excellent, thank you. And that parallel is later Luke rushes off to rescue Han and Leia, who have been captured on Cloud City. Um, in Act 3, the Republic discovers the location of the hidden Separatist base on Geonosis and launches a major ground offensive. The Separatists evacuate on Cloud City. Darth Vader lures Luke Skywalker, Skywalker to him by using Han and Leia and Chewbacca as bait. Bounty Hunter escapes. So it, that that's all very similar, too, as well. So I... I'm nearly done with the, the monotonous, um, the exciting readings of similarities. So the, the parallels between the Revenge of the Sith and A New Hope, which are the, the C and C prime, respectively. Um, Act 1 is a space battle between the Republic and Separatist forces on Coruscant, um, a fateful encounter between Obi-Wan and a Skywalker. Um, Anakin and Obi-Wan enter General Grievous's ship and rescue Chancellor Palpatine. Obi-Wan and Luke come across slaughtered Jawas, which leads to a terrible discovery. Grievous escapes to the hidden Separatist base. Obi-Wan and Luke leave Tatooine. There's a great disturbance in the Force when Anakin turns to the dark side and Palpatine executes Order 66. There's a great disturbance in the Force when the Death Star destroys Alderaan. Uh, Obi-Wan and Yoda come across slaughtered younglings, which lands, leads to a terrible discovery. Um, Luke, Han, and Obi-Wan enter the Death Star and rescue the captive Princess Leia and return to the hidden rebel base. Um... And fateful encounter takes place between Obi-Wan and the Skywalker. Um, space battle between Imperial and Rebel forces raged over the Death Star. So th th that's all of the, the monotonous droning on about those points. But maybe listen to them again, or or even better, go and read the, the Star Wars Ring Theory. This is just a tiny little snippet. He provides so much of all of the, the similarities between them. But that that's some of my, my Star Wars similarities. Because George Lucas was... He, he, he knew what he was doing. He combined so many things. There's a lot of Taoism. Um, I will try to link this, but there is a mind-blowing picture that you never realize. 
that one of the scenes, at the end of the scene, in the clouds, you distinctly see, with, with, between the clouds and the sun, the, the sun's here, and then there's a cloud obscuring the rest of it, and there's a hole in the middle of the cloud. I'm not sure if that was CG, but he managed to get the yin-yang into a cloud in a scene. There's a picture of that that I'll probably link in the description, too. I found that interesting. interesting. The, the entire thing of that movie, and we can tie this in with our, our episode on literary alchemy, is that he, both that movie and Harry Potter and everything else is very much so about the unification of opposites. So sort of disidentifying with the mental conceptions of good and bad and right and wrong, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there's sort of an inner alchemy of the opposites. And that implies allowing ourselves to embrace the dance of opposites, et cetera, et cetera. Um, flexibility, detachment, self-control, et cetera. I can definitely see nice, that scene nice. in, uh, in Star Wars, yeah. self-control. Yeah, very much so. The, the, the middle path, the resolution of contraries. Um, and the, the explanation of that, that's one of the most beautiful thing, scenes, I think, in the entire Star Wars trilogy. Um, Darth Vader, moved by Luke's faith and compassion, turns on the Emperor and sacrifices himself to save his son. And through the, this heroic act, he finds the balance within himself, re resolving the conflict between light and dark sides of the Force. And by restoring inner harmony, he also restores outer harmony to the galaxy. And thus, Anakin fulfills his destiny and brings balance to the Force. So, sp symbolically speaking, he's balanced all the pairs of opposites. So, yeah. Um, I'll, also, I briefly realized that the center of the circle deserves more talking about. I didn't really talk about that enough earlier, so I'll go up a bit and talk more at the center. If you think about it, the, the perimeter of the ring is pretty much what we're, we've been focusing on, the, the parallel sections, but it's all sort of encapsulating the, the turning point, the, the, the center of the circle, right? And wh where that turning point is essentially encapsulates the entire story into one little, little bite-sized piece. And in Star Wars, that's the fight on Mustafar, where Anakin turns to the dark side and gets encased in his, his shiny black suit for the rest of the the series, for the rest of the ring. It, and, yeah, the, the um, what, what connects to the beginning and the end of the ring between the center, the, that invisible line drawn in the middle, is um, the line, there's good in him, Anakin, I know there is still. Oh, and this is one of my favorite quotes. I, I can't believe I haven't brought this up yet. That the inside is bigger than the outside from the last battle when they're going further up and further in it's always bigger in the next level so <laughs> that, that's the, the importance of the, the ring or the circle the circle you can, can't really define the center of a circle right how big or small is the the the, the center in, in math we see it's the little dot but it's not really that dot is it it's it's how, how big or small is it so in, in all of these ring readings, that there's sort of allusions to that. The Hermione's bag, the room of requirement, King's Cross, the, the tent in Harry Potter, all of those are things that are bigger on the inside than they are on the outside. So the, the ring, the goal of the ring is sort of to herd us into the center and the origin of the circle. And that's sort of its cause because the circle, how would you have a circle without a center, right? Otherwise it would just be a line and it needs a center. And that line in Harry Potter, I'm sort of slowly dissolving into the Harry Potter territory, is which came first, the phoenix or the flame? I think and the answer to that by Luna Lovegood is, I think a circle has no beginning. And that that's a very, sort of a throwaway line, but it's really not. It's something that you pass over quickly, but 
something to really think about. That that that's sort of a profound line, I think. The a circle has no beginning, and that's sort of a reference to the entire ring structure of all of the books. So a circle isn't really knowable without the center. And the other most important line of the entire Harry Potter trilogy, I think, is Harry has, when, when he's talking with Dumbledore, um, I've probably thrown in a skip ahead to this time if you want to avoid Harry Potter spoilers, but because I will be talking a lot about Harry Potter spoilers from now on. But um, when Harry is talking to Dumbledore in the seventh book at King's Cross Station, as he's dissolving, he says, Is this real, or has this all been inside my head? The answer that Dumbledore gives is, Of course it's real, but why on earth... Or no, of course it's been happening inside your head, but why on earth should that mean that it's not real? And um, Lewis and what's-his-name? Um, Tolkien? No, he, he had an argument with... who Who, who was it? Um, about subject versus object. Where am I thinking? Oh, um... um uh, uh, let me see I if know I can find it. talking about. Barfield, I think that's it, right? Is it? That doesn't sound familiar, but you could be right. Yes, yes, Owen Barfield, about the relation of subject and object. Um, and he, Lewis at last accepted the point that Barfield made that, um, quote, in the last resort, that the whole universe was, in the last resort, mental, that our logic was partic participation in the cosmic logos. So that's sort of the the antithesis to the empiricist worldview that everything's matter and energy, I suppose, that that we, we have a soul, etc. Yeah. The antithesis to everything is, is just real. Exactly. Is that nothing is just real. Yeah, that what 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 can happen inside our head can be real too yeah and before i get into harry potter i i would like well actually you know i think i'll do harry potter first and then i can tell you why we love rings as humans so well well th this this is something that i cannot do in the the 10 minutes remaining to us but i will do my best so i highly recommend i, I i'm not sure a for copyright reasons and b because Mr. Granger spent a lot of time on this book, I'm sure. It's a lecture that he, he wrote down as a book. It's called um, Harry Potter is a Ring Composition and Cycle. Um, the Magical Structure and Transcendent Meaning of the Hogwarts Saga. It's a, a transcription of a lecture he wrote, but he did put up a bunch, he wrote up a bunch of diagrams and put them in this book, and it's well written. So I highly recommend that you get that and read it. And I won't spoil the entire thing for you, but he talks a ton about a bunch of really interesting parallels between a bunch of things in the books, but um, the the parallels that I'll draw, the, the big ring, if you will, is obviously, since there's seven books, I think that we can as assign the, the, the turning point of the ring to the Goblet of Fire. So if we have a circle, I'll probably try to link a, description, a diagram of this in the description as well. If we have a circle, then the Goblet of Fire is at the top, and the Philosopher's Stone and Deathly Hallows are at the bottom. And then we have... Chamber of Secrets, Prisoner of Azkaban, Order of the Phoenix, and Half Footprints as um, going around the ring. And the parallels between the Chamber of Secrets and the Half Footprints are Tom Riddle, and the parallel between the Prisoner of Azkaban and the Order of the Phoenix is Sirius Black. So that that's the, the big, big ring parallels there. Um, but then 
that that's just the tip of the iceberg. Um, what what I find is really interesting is the rings within rings that she creates. So I can't really fully give you the appreciation of what she's done by voice alone, but try to imagine what I what I'm saying here. So if you have a circle, we'll just dissect the Philosopher's Stone, which, by the way, is Scholastic, the, the book that Scholastic unfortunately termed Sorcerer's Stone in the United States because they said, why on earth would anyone in our target audience, which is um, probably younger children, read anything, or any Americans in general, read something with Philosopher in the title. So they decided to scrap the Philosopher and go with Sorcerer, which is... A severe blunder, but yeah, I'll always call it Philosopher's Stone, so if you hear me say that, that's what I'm talking about. So in that book, we have the the, the beginning, middle, and end points. The, the main themes there are miraculous survival. So the first chapter is obviously a prologue or exposition, the, the boy who lived. Um, and that's our, our introduction to the world of Harry Potter. We meet Dumbledore, we see baby Harry, he's dropped off at his aunt and uncle's etc. We know what just happened, who's been defeated, and that's the, the exposition of the entire story. So that that's the beginning, obviously, and the end is the, the man with two faces or the vanishing glass, where, spoilers by the way if you haven't stopped yet, where Harry Potter defeats Voldemort, who is the, the bad guy of the series, who's in Professor Quirrell. So that's the the tie-in with the end, his miraculous survival. He's survived Voldemort at the beginning of the book. We see him as a baby. He's just survived, and at the end, he also just survives. But then, what's most interesting to me is the parallels between all of these these chapters. So, in chapter three, you have letters from no one across the circle. Is chapter sixteen, which is through the trap door, and both of those are very adventure chapters. Um, in letters from no one. That there is the mystery, the intrigue. Who is sending me these letters? Harry Potter doesn't know he's a wizard yet. He's getting all of these mysterious letters, right? And that, that's very adventurous. And then they, they go to this remote island to escape from the letter writer. And Uncle Vernon goes mad, etc. And through the trap door, they're, they've made the leap of faith. They've decided to, to go beneath the school and try to stop the bad guy from taking the, the thing he needs to survive. So they're courageous decisions. And chapters 4 and 5 correspond across the circle to chapters 13 and 15. Um, chapters 4 and 5 are the Keeper of the Keys, and chapters 13 and 15 is the Forbidden Forest. And both of those have Rubius Hagrid featuring in great prominence. Um, chapter 6 is the Journey from Platform 9 and 3 quarters. Chapter 12 is the Mirror of Erised, which is reflected across the circle. And that's another hint. The Mirror of Erised, uh, a very mirror-like thing is in rings. Yeah. The, the mirror, the, the whole ring is a mirror. So the, the parallels between those are Ron and Harry and identity and family issues. And then chapter 7, the sorting hat, corresponds to chapter 11, Quidditch, across the circle. And in that, Harry's self is revealed. He learns his personality, etc. Um, chapter 8 is the potions master. That corresponds to chapter 10, Halloween on the other side. And their worst enemies, best friends there. And chapter 9 is the the crux, the turning point, the midnight duel of the entire book. So I hope that wasn't as confusing as I feel that it was. I hope that you appreciate um, what 
the the, the parallels there. I, I I was able to follow along with you. Uh, Good. Yeah. Yes. Thank it you sounds. So much. It is very plausible. Yes, very plausible. Which is important. And she does this for every book. It's obsessive. Oh, oh yes, and I forgot to address um, how how we know we're not just picking this out of thin air, how we know that Rowling intentionally wove this into her stories. Well, one of the reasons is because J.K. Rowling is a super patterns person. She's very pattern-oriented, and one of the the um, indications of that is that J.K. Rowling, when, when she was writing The Half-Blood Prince in 2004, I think it was, um, she, she happened to write in a comment once that she um, had 99 seconds in the expert-level Minesweeper, and if you go on the Internet Archive, Wayback Machine, and go look up the old um, Minesweeper record boards, she's 27th place in Minesweeper, and... Um, Max, would you like to explain Minesweeper? I'm not sure if I can do it sufficiently. Oh, oh, oh yes, I, I shall explain. Minesweeper is a computer game that revolves around use of logic. And there is a grid with numbers on it. There are bombs, and then, yes, there's a grid. Certain spaces have numbers, and certain spaces are covered, and certain spaces are empty. Each number shows that in the area around it that's the number of bombs and so it's what you do is you have to use the logic and um the logic and positioning of uh the tiles in order to determine exactly where the bombs are uh the the mines the mines rather it is minesweeper so you use the the numbers to determine where the mines are based only off of how many mines are in a certain position as well as the uncovered spaces. It, it's simple, yet complex. Yeah, I thought that was a very good description. I couldn't have done that well, but I, I recommend you go and check it out. It, it's a very interesting and thought-provoking game. Very, very brain-taxing to do, but I think that's a, a good um, tell to us that Miss Rowling is a very pattern-oriented person. You need to, A, a lot of dedication and time spent on Minesweeper. I don't want to imagine how many hours she put in there. And B, you need to be, have a very pattern-oriented mind in order to be able to find, almost instantly, to get 99 seconds on a huge board to find out where all of these mines are based on the number of the, the square that you're looking at and all of the correspondence. It's, it's so difficult to do. I can barely do an easy in five minutes. So that, that's amazing, and it's a, a, um, a testament to her pattern-thinking abilities. And she also is very fond of names and alliteration throughout her entire book. I'm not sure if you've noticed, but she has a bit of a thing for alliteration. The Peter Pettigrew, Ministry of Magic, Smelting Stick, um, Wan Whomping Willow, the Triwizard Tournament, Defense Against the Dark Arts, um, the Four Founders, Godric Gryffindor, Salazar Slytherin, Alina Leibnacht, Helga Hufflepuff, Heads of Houses, Four Founders, Minerva McGonagall, Severus Snape, Phileas Flitlick, Pomona Spout, Sprout, um, Quirious Quirrell, Mad-Eye Moody, Bloody Baron, Fat Friar, Nearly Had His Neck, Moaning Myrtle, Peeves the Poltergeist, etc., etc. I think she's a bit of a fan of alliteration, and that, that that's another um, thing that we can notice and say, well, she's um, attention to detail and pattern. It, it's mind-blowing to me. I, I can't convey it properly, but if you read this book, 
ring comp Harry Potter as ring composition and ring series, I guarantee that you two will be blown away with how amazing all of her parallels are. It, it's oh, I I can't. I got chills reading it, but I can't properly convey it over air. And if you are not yet convinced that Harry Potter is wonderful and J.K. Rowling is a genius, don't worry. We will do an episode on that. I, I have been preparing for it for a long time. Um, but till then, just you have to take our word for it. The Harry Potter is a truly wonderful work of art. Um, do you have any questions as to the, the ring reading of Harry Potter? I do not have any questions, no. That is good to hear. No, neither do I. That relieves me. Um, oh, yes. But now we can talk about why we love circles. I'm not sure if your first answer... Mine maybe wasn't before I researched all this, and I'm not sure if these two um, had the, the same opinion, either that the, the best shape is a circle. But I think that we as humans really inherently do love circles. And here's an excellent quote from Mr. Granger on why we love circles, and in particular ring compositions. Ahem. Quote, Hearing or reading a story, then, that is told in the shape or form of a circle, a ring composition whose beginning and end and, and, and end allied in the center, and whose parts, in Rowling's case, all over individual chapters on either side of the axis are, to use Douglas's phrase, mirroring twin series of analogies, is a therapy, perhaps even the beginning of a cure for our spiritual heart disease. Again, Eliade, in a secular culture, entertainments are a mythic or religious function. Call it heart massage, end quote. So I think that's a good summing up of the the twin series of analogies and the, the resolution of those analogies at the end. So, yeah, because one of the most wonderful things about this and the reason we appreciate circles so much in stories is that in stories, we're, very, we're not very skeptical. When, when you read a book and something that couldn't happen in real life happens, you don't say, oh, that's unrealistic, right? We, we go along with it because it's a story, because we've suspended our disbelief in an act of poetic faith, says Coleridge. Yeah, it's like we aren't going to uh, reasonably accept that people, they're witches and wizards, wizards hiding, exactly. kept in hiding, and that, they're, um, and that they're using magic without our knowing. But we can believe we're we allow ourselves to be deceived because we're so invested in the characters and in the story that that we I guess we, we sort of want it to be become true exactly and that, that's that's why stories are such a good tool for for messaging in general and while that can be used for bad it's much more difficult than using it for good purposes as I think um, that since we're accepting what we're reading in the stories blindly that sort of plants a seed that maybe on later we'll. Maybe later on we'll realize, hmm, maybe they, they had something there. Maybe that was a good idea. Hmm, interesting. So it, it's something that we, d by default, accept blindly. If if there's some, um, um, what's a word, really unusual idea that somebody wants you to accept and you're completely against it, if they come up to you and try to get you, force you to accept it, you're not going to do it. But if you read it in the book, you're, oh, this is a book. Of course. And then you sort of accept it and it trickles in. So how that can be used for good and bad. Uh, another is by example why we love rings. Why is the best-selling series of our age, Harry Potter, 
written as a ring, one of the best rings ever written, I think. Well, maybe it's because humans love rings, even though we might not realize it at first. So th that's my, my conclusion of why we love circles and ring reading. But lastly, a short little section is how to ring read. Um, it's sort of self-explanatory after hearing the seven rules, but mainly find the turning point, find the center, the, the crux. Go to that. It's usually about halfway through the story. Find that, and then go to the beginning, read the beginning chapter, or beginning section. Go to the end, read the end section, and go to the second beginning section, and go to the second end section, and work your way into the ring, and try to draw similarities between all of the, the parallel sections that you read. And then you can appreciate just how amazing and difficult it is to ring right. So, I I any other thoughts? I do not no, have any other no, thoughts. I don't think so. Yeah. Great. And I suppose, I, I think we already addressed this earlier on, but the way this applies to us, I suppose, is appreciation of um, how people are written in rings and um, uh, as a good way of story organization. Because, like we mentioned, if you just higgledy piggledy right all over the place, it's not very, it, it's understandable but I don't think it's as appreciable or productive or neat as if you're writing off a template. And we got an excellent email from a listener. Thank you. You you, you answered our call with gusto to, to emails, though, though we would still like them, of course, um, that something like literary alchemy and now ring composition is a template, sort of, yes, but it also shouldn't mask the individual genius of the author or creator of the story. So take this as sort of a, a very loose template to go off of and something, a tool to write stories in general, not as the be-all, end-all. I know this happens with me a lot. I get so excited and obsessed with all the symbolism and scaffolding that I sort of forget the actual point of the story, and that is certainly something to be avoided. That's not ideal at all. Yeah, appreciate these for what they are, but appreciate them as tools. So... That, that's my, my two cents, my, my amplification call to action. We'll leave our recommended reading or looking at in the description. So is that all? Do you guys have anything to add? No, you covered it precisely. Uh, ring structure or ring composition in Greek mythology needs its own episode. Oh, yes. Because oh, oh, the yes, entirety yes. of the Odyssey and the Iliad yeah. is a ring. And uh, I don't know, this this episode, listeners, this episode might have a part two that you can look forward to. Oh, so, yes. Uh, the, yeah, just, just I, I am already keep this, a lookout for that. I thought the literary alchemy was difficult to research. Well, this, you find uh, there, there's a plethora of things to investigate. And if only I, I could prepare for a year and still not know everything there is to know about ring composition. So it's a very... Um, deep subject that's very interesting that you can go learn much more about and oh yes I'm sure we will have a part two and I would love to talk about the Iliad and the Odyssey that would be excellent David so yes, I think that's all for us so th this has been rhetoric and retrospect um, your comments, corrections, questions and quandaries would be greatly appreciated and please email them to us at rhetoricandretrospect at gmail.com he said it. I said it. Said I, I remembered it this he time. Thing. I remembered the thing. <laughs> um, yeah. So without further ado, I think that has been all from Ben, Max, and David. So 
Goodbye for now. We are signing off. Signing off. Signing off. Goodbye. Bye.